Well, welcome back. Um, I think most of you have been a part of the, the seminar on the first half of all this. So we we went through a ton of history, uh, like 1,400 years or so of history in the last five weeks. We're going to take on a, a smaller chunk in, in, uh, in this five weeks. We're going to be about four or 500 years which is still a decent amount to cover, but a lot of things have happened in the last 500 years. So um, we're going to get into some really good stuff and things that will probably feel a bit more consequential to uh, the church today and how we, we see things working out. Rather than talking about ancient things like Christendom and all that stuff, uh, we're going to look at more of how all of that has shifted in the last 500 years. Um, so we'll start in the 1500s and work our way to the 1900s. And really, just like last time, we're going to hit the highlights. We're going to talk through the big things that happen, um, be kind of selective in, in what we'll talk about. But what we're going to do is basically go through um, uh, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, tonight and next week. Uh, we're taking two weeks out of the five on the Reformation because it's it's a significant thing, probably the most significant thing that has happened in the last 500 years. And so it, to do justice to it, we have to spend some good time on it. And it was, a, it was not a single event. It was a process. And so there's a lot of characters and a lot of things that happened. So we'll work through that in the next couple weeks and then really kind of continue to talk about um, the, the Reformation. But as it develops over time into the 1600s, we'll talk about the Puritans uh, and what they were, what they were up to in England primarily. And then we'll we'll talk about um, kind of the new world and what was going on in the 1700s and early 1800s, and then we'll get into the 20th century. So that's kind of the trajectory of the class, and we'll see where we go. But we're going to start today by working through the Protestant Reformation. And what, what I want to do tonight is work through basically the early period of the Reformation, the, the early characters and figures and leaders of the Reformation uh, this week. And then next week, we'll talk about more of the later or the second wave of Reformation. Um, so this week it's going to be a couple of guys, um, Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, not John Calvin, that's next week, uh, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. And uh, we'll talk about those two guys today primarily. Next week we'll talk Calvin and then the English Reformation, which is a wild story in and of itself. So, um, so that'll be next week. But this week we're going to start with the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther and Zwingli. And these two guys were in different parts of the uh, European continent, different countries, but were basically concurrently uh, learning the scriptures uh, separately, but at the same time. It's very, very interesting, actually. But let's talk just generally about the Protestant Reformation. What is this... Um, the Protestant Reformation stands, I think, today as the most far-reaching and world-changing event uh, in history as a display of God's grace to the church and really began to bring the church out of the, the Middle Ages and the, the medieval understanding of the church and the scriptures in Christendom and began to uh, really take it back to the individual response of the human heart to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so this is a, a massive thing to talk about. It's not a single act. It's not like just one moment in time the, the Reformation happened. It was a process. Uh, it wasn't led by just one man, though there were several key figures. Um, but there, were, there wasn't just one single leader of the Reformation. It didn't happen in just one country. Uh, it happened all over the European continent in various ways and at different times. But the, uh, the ultimate impact of the Reformation is so enormous, I don't think we can overstate it. And Philip Schaeff, who's a church historian, uh, maybe does a little bit overstate it. I don't know, but he's, he's very, very positive towards the Reformation, as am I. Uh, but here's what he said. He said, the Reformation of the 16th century, next to the introduction of Christianity, is the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave, directly or indirectly, a mighty impulse 
to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. The Reformation was, at its heart, a recovery of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and this restoration had an unparalleled influence on churches, nations, and the flow of Western civilization. So again, that's Peter Schaeff, church historian, and I I would agree with him on that. I, I think that the Protestant Reformation, at least as far as the world in which we live and the times in which we live is the, is the single most important shaping moment in the history of the church. And uh, obviously our Catholic friends would probably disagree with that, and uh, that's okay. But, but I don't think we can argue the influence of the Protestant Reformation on Western thought, Western culture, um, and, and really continues to this day to continue to shape and, and drive uh, much of the church. So, so what we saw in the last seminar, the, the first half of church history, is that God is directing the world in such a way that the scene, the historical movements of, of the world had been uniquely prepared for the Reformation. In the last couple weeks or so of that, of that session, we, we talked about the, the specific things that were happening in the world to get to the point where the Reformation was ready to take off. Uh, again, we, we can remember that there's not, there wasn't as if total darkness enveloped everything uh, in the Middle Ages. There were glimmers of, of light in people understanding aspects of the truth. You had uh, John Wycliffe, for example. You had people like that, and even some of the monasteries were capturing certain things that were good and right. Um, it wasn't completely hopeless, but the the overall tone or or cultural movement had not gotten to a point where anything could really stick, and so John Wycliffe gets killed, and and then his body gets re- unburied and burned, and all these things. Like it's like that's the world he lived in, even though he was right and way ahead of his time. the The world wasn't there yet, and so as we move into the 1500s, we are seeing a, a church that is massively in need of reform. Uh, There's no doubt that spiritual darkness is a major factor in the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible is a closed book at this point in history, open to only a very few people, the the priestly class, uh, but most of them weren't reading it, weren't caring about it. Um, The ignorance of spiritual things were was just just dominating the minds of, of people. The gospel message itself was misunderstood and twisted. Uh, church tradition was, was more important than truth in the scriptures. Personal holiness, especially among the, the priestly class and the pope, was basically abandoned. Everybody's living just kind of crazy lives. Um, there is just a ton of tradition that's that's making all of this very hard to see. And so... That was the darkness, but at the same time, uh, we're seeing things become uh, get into place. We're seeing the Renaissance start to take over in European thought, starting in Italy and moving around the continent. That that created a new way of looking at the world and at the individual person, and people were starting to think about their their individual lives uh, rather than just as a a cog in a machine, but rather as individual people. Now, there's pros and cons to that, of course, like anything, but that was a factor that was helping to to start preparing the ground for the uh, for the Reformation. We're also seeing in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, the development of universities where people were being educated in classical things, and the Renaissance brought to light the the old philosophies of Aristotle and Socrates and guys that had been largely ignored and forgotten, though not biblical, uh, opening up uh, just different ways of thinking about the world. Um, by the late uh, Middle Ages, the, there was a middle class that was rising through uh, just modern, modern times and opening up economic opportunities for people. Uh, technology like the printing press, made it so that information could be spread quickly and and far, far quicker than it had ever been, uh, making the world a smaller place in a lot of ways. And then you had Christopher Columbus in the late 1400s who 
uh, utilize technology of sails and uh, the advancement of, of boats to get to the new world. And that starts to open up all of these trade uh, routes around the world as well. So we've got this very unique time in history that is just pre- preparing the soil for the Mar- uh, for Martin Luther and Zwingli to come into the scene and begin to just crack open the door to the gospel. So we're going to spend a little time tonight, uh, quite a bit of time on Luther and a bit of time on this guy named Zwingli. And Luther's probably someone you have heard of. I don't know how many of you have heard of Zwingli. Some of you probably have. He's not nearly as uh, well-known, um, but he contributed a, a great deal to this. But Luther is the guy that if you think about the Protestant Reformation, Luther is probably the person who comes to mind, and rightly so. Uh, Luther had a massive influence and impact in, in the world as the kind of the beginning domino, that first domino that gets everything kind of rolling uh, along. And so I want to spend some time tonight talking about Luther's life, um, who he was, um, how he got to the point where he was beginning to reform and think about reformation and all those things. How did he get there? We're going to talk through that. Uh, Basically do some biography stuff, but uh, we're only going to touch the surface. So if you're interested in, in biographies, if you like to read biographies, I've got a couple Luther biographies you can Take a look at and, and pick these up. There's, uh, this is the classic um, uh, Here I Stand uh, is what, it's, what this is called. This was written in like the 1950s. But this is like kind of the definitive classic Martin Luther biography. There's also a new one. It's much bigger and longer, but uh, it's much easier to read. It's by Eric Metaxas who wrote a biography on uh, Bonhoeffer and he's written some other biographies but martin luther this is a pretty good one uh it's it's enjoyable it's easy to read um i'm not sure if it's as accurate but it's that's okay it's pretty it's going to be close enough so those are a couple options if you're interested in more than what i say tonight but let's talk about luther and who he was um he was born in, in november of 1483 in germany and uh, he grew up in a, in a small town. Uh, his dad was a miner, uh, was a working class guy, pretty, um, yeah, pretty lower, lower income kind of family. But uh, Luther grew up and, and showed, to be, showed himself to be a very intelligent person. And so his father worked really hard to save up enough money to send uh, Martin to university. And he enrolled him in the University of Erfurt, uh, where he was to study law and become a lawyer. And this was his father's great ambition, was for his son to have a better life than he had, uh, not be uh, working you know, in a mine underground, but, but to have an academic career and to make a lot more money and to have more social standing. And so he, his father was, was a nominal Christian. I mean, everybody was a nominal Christian in those days, right? They were Roman Catholics, of course, because there was no other options. Um, but, but his parents weren't particularly pious. They were churchgoers like in, as much as anybody else was. But his dad was not particularly concerned about religion. Uh, he was very concerned about social aspirations for his son. So he, he gets his son in, into the university to study law. And... Um, the, one of the pivotal moments that happens is at the age of 21, Luther is walking back to the university from his home, from his parents' house, uh, and in July, and he gets caught in a thunderstorm. And what happens is a bolt of lightning strikes the ground uh, so close to him that it knocks him down. And as Luther hits the ground, he just very kind of sporadically makes this vow by saying, St. Anne, who is the patron saint of minors, help me, he says, and I shall become a monk. And so basically he has a near-death experience, or so he thinks. He, at least he, he was very close, too close for comfort. And in a, in a moment of uh, just kind of fear of, of dying, he makes this hasty vow to this, this St. Anne uh, that if he survives, he'll become a monk. 
Now, Luther, as a young man, was, was very much more pious, much more religious than his parents. And that always bothered his, his father. His, one of Luther's um, heroes was Prince uh, Wilhelm, uh, who had left the nobility, became a monk, and ended up dying because he fasted so long that he starved to death. And Luther really looked up to this guy, uh, Wilhelm, for whatever reason. So his dad was like, I don't like that. Um, don't want my kid to become like that. Um, but Luther was a very religious guy, just kind of by, by nature. And so as he has this near-death experience, he makes this, this hasty vow. Um, and he realizes that without a chance, he could have died without taking a final confession to a priest or having any last rites read to him. And he started to really become afraid that if he had died without those things, which the Catholic Church taught was necessary to ensure that you would go to heaven, uh, he was afraid that what, would, what he would encounter on the other side of death would be too terrifying to consider. So he makes the vow in a moment of fear, but he's going to keep his vow. He didn't, he didn't make it in a way that you and I would probably have made it and go, well, I didn't really mean it. You know, he, we, we'd make all the excuses. He did not. He kept the vow. He, he joined the monastery. Uh, he, he became an Augustinian monk. His father was absolutely furious about this um, because of how much he had spent and saved and, and tried to help Luther become something important in his eyes, in his understanding. And uh, Luther's throwing it all away by joining the monastery. But there was nothing his father could really do. He was an adult and he was going to do what he's going to do. So Martin joins the monastery and he absolutely lapped up all of the rules and regulations that the monasteries require. We talked a little bit about these in the, the first session on, on the uh, Benedictine monasteries. He was an Augustinian monk, not a Benedictine monk, but the same, very similar rules apply. Lots of prayer, lots of fasting, lots of religious expression. And um, while he really thrived in that environment and enjoyed in a sense, he enjoyed all those rules and regulations. The more he did spiritually, the more troubled he became. And so just as an example, one of the things that plagued him, and he exasperated the, the, the father of the monastery to no end because he continued to ask questions about these things. But he's, he's thinking about his prayers in chapel. And he knew that if his prayers were not uttered, it, out of a genuine heart, they wouldn't be heard by the Lord, or this is what he's thinking, and that he would be judged by insincere prayers. But Luther's looking inward and he's going, but I know that I'm not always praying sincerely. So are, what am I to do with that? And he was just plagued by not being able to do enough or guarantee enough spirituality or enough piety uh, or, or to be what he needed to be. He was very plagued by his... Um, his sin, essentially, and, and the recognition that he could not actually live up to the expectations. And, uh, you know, the, the father of the monastery and these, these other people he was talking to just tried to kind of push him, push him away. He said, don't, don't think about it so much. Don't worry about it so much. Luther couldn't do that. Um, so that's, gonna, that's kind of the beginning of his, his discontent uh, was an internal issue, was an issue of his own heart and how to reconcile his struggles internally with God's word. Well, by uh, 1507, Luther was ordained to the priesthood and uh, he became a Catholic priest and he was, uh, like, like you do as a Catholic priest, you um, facilitate the mass. And so he's up to this point where he's giving his first mass as a priest and the way Luther tells it is that he stood at the altar and terror overwhelmed him in that moment. He just absolutely freaked out because for the first time in his life, he realized he would have to speak directly to God. He had never done that before. He had always prayed to God through the mediation of a saint or Mary. He never dared to, to talk to God directly. And now he's standing at the altar. He is responsible to, to pray to the Father and be the mediator 
between these people in his in this congregation and the and the Lord, and he uh, just freaked out. He couldn't see how a sinner, and he was very well aware of his own deficiencies as a person. That was one thing we could we can really commend Luther for. He knew he was a sinner, even before he was a Christian. He understood that, um, and he couldn't see that as a sinner how he could actually address God. And so he became very desperate at that moment to seek for a solution to the problem of sin and how salvation can be attained. Here's how Luther in his own words described his inner turmoil. Uh, turmoil. He, he said, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. And what he means by that is going outside in the cold and trying to withstand the cold. Uh, the frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge. So Luther's thinking back, obviously he said this after he had become a follower of Christ, and he's looking back on his years in the monastery in his early years as a priest, and, and just realized how tortured he was by all of the uh, observances of the law and the rules and the traditions of the church. And he didn't see Jesus as a good savior. He saw him as a terrible judge. And that, that is really the, the point where Luther starts to seek diligently for, for answers. And so here's what Luther does. He begins to study the Bible. This drives him to the scriptures. Now, what's interesting is that the, the private study of the Bible, even as a monk, was not allowed. You could study it collectively, communally with others, but you weren't supposed to study the Bible for yourself, even as an ordained priest. Now, that's, that's pretty wild. But Luther, uh, always a little bit willing to break the rules uh, you know, to the point to the point that he felt he needed to, like he defied his father's will, he joined the monastery. Now he's going to go. Well, I need to do this. So he he finds a quiet spot in the library, and he begins to study the scriptures uh, in the original languages, um, Hebrew and Greek. That he was educated in in those languages and could study them. Again, they weren't translated into any any language that the common person spoke. Um, Erasmus, a guy named Erasmus at this point or near this point had been, had translated the New Testament into Greek or brought the Old Testament, New Testament back into Greek, uh, rather than just the Latin translation. But Luther's working through all of this and he's searching for answers. And as he does this, he gains an extraordinary knowledge of the Bible. He, he's just devouring it. And, um, He's a brilliant man. He was a brilliant man. So he, he just started to learn the scriptures incredibly well. Well, eventually, as Luther is studying the Bible, he eventually is offered a, a teaching position at a new university, the University of Wittenberg in Germany. And uh, he takes that position and he starts to teach. And he uses that, that extra time now that he's not in the monastery. He's in an academic role. So he has lots of free time to just study and read and, and dig, dig more deeply. So now he's got even more time to dig into the scriptures and search for answers. But the question that continually plagued him was this, how does a sinner stand before a holy God? That's what he's trying to figure out for himself and, um, and, and obviously then for, for others. So fast forward a bit to 1517. And there's a Domitian, uh, Dominican, excuse me, friar named uh, John Tetzel. We talked about him in the last class, I think, of the last session. Um, just briefly touched on John Tetzel. He was a guy who was, he was a friar, and he was going around from place to place selling indulgences. Uh, indulgences were things that a common person could purchase from the church to ensure that a loved one of theirs, a dead loved one, could get out of purgatory and get to heaven. So John Tetzel comes to Wittenberg and he's offering these, these uh, indulgences and he is, uh, he's doing this. Um, initially, the, the whole thing with indulgences started to help fund the Crusades and, and raise money for that. By this point, the Crusades are, are over and um, what's happening is they're trying to raise money 
for the Pope, Pope Leo X, to pay for a new St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So they're trying to raise money to rebuild uh, St. Peter's Basilica and make it even more grand and beautiful. And so this is just like, again, just an abuse of, of uh, manipulation and people are, are being deceived in all this. So as Tetzel comes to Wittenberg, Luther gets really angry about what he's seeing. It's, it's abusive and he is uh, enraged by it. So he decides that it's time for us, for us as in the church, to discuss this issue, to, to have a public debate on the issue of indulgences. And so on October 31st, 1517, he nailed a list of 95 theses or 95 arguments uh, regarding indulgences. And he nailed that list of 95 theses to the front door of the castle church in Wittenberg. So this is, of course, the moment that most people point back to as the launching of the Reformation. And, as, and it was essentially that that was the moment. Uh, even today, October 31st is referred to as Reformation Day in some circles. Um, obviously, it's also Halloween. But uh, that was the day that, that Luther nailed the 95 Theses. And so in theological circles that lean more Reformed, the, the October 31st is considered Reformation Day because of this. Um, but I know that there's like there's a lot of lore and kind of fable around this. It was a big moment, and some people kind of portray it as Luther making this big, massive, you know, uh, think statement. But that really wasn't what was happening. Uh, Luther was doing what was common, and in academic circles, to do. He was putting up his his argument. He wrote out his position. He nailed it to the door of Wittenberg because that was the town bulletin board. That was just where people nailed things all the time. There was all kinds of things stamped to those to those doors. It was the public place. Uh, and in a academic city like Wittenberg, where there's a university and there's other academics, his intention was to put his positions out there so that somebody would debate him, so that they would have a calm discussion among mainly the faculty of the university and he wasn't really trying to start a popular revolution. That wasn't his initial intent. Now, he gets there in the end, as we'll see, but he, that wasn't the, the, the original intention. Um, it, in fact, it's, it's by Luther's own account, Luther wasn't even a Christian truly in 1517. He, he claims that his conversion to Christ happened in 1519, two years after he nailed his 95 theses to the door uh, of this church. And so Luther had not yet even completed his journey to the Lord Jesus in a, in a meaningful way. He was, on the, he was on the way. He was working towards it. But some, some Lutheran historians would argue that he was actually saved in 1508 um, when he started to question these things. Luther didn't think he was saved that early on, so we'll go with his his position on that. But regardless of when the Lord actually gripped his heart uh, and saved him and brought him to faith, uh, he wasn't intending for these 95 theses to spark a revolution of the church or to see the, the Catholic church break into, into pieces. He really was just trying to help the church have a reasonable discussion about an issue that he that he saw as a serious issue, which is indulgences. So that was the intent. But a copy of the ninety five thesis falls into the hands of a printer, uh, somebody who is gonna gonna make a bunch of copies of it, and they did. And then they started to spread those those uh, papers around Germany and ultimately around Europe. And within a few weeks, Luther becomes um, a very popular figure. He start his ideas start to really shape people and and think make them think deeply and so essentially the reformation is born at this moment uh within a few weeks of of him nailing this 95 theses but it was it was a slow process um so so anyways that's what happens and uh and that's what kind of starts the domino effect but let's get back to luther's search for answers um because he's still searching for the question 
he's yes, he's addressing the issue of indulgences, and he thinks that's a problem, and it and it was obviously a problem. But he still hadn't fully come to the conclusion of how to be right with God. And during all of this, Luther becomes obsessed with a passage in Romans. Romans 1.17 becomes his, his, the passage he just zeroes in on. And it says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And, and Luther really wrestled over that passage because Luther's understanding initially of what it means for the righteousness of God, that phrase righteousness of God, to him originally meant, or, or he understood it as God's active righteousness, meaning his avenging justice against sin. And so he was reading that, that and trying to come to grips with how this makes sense. And on those terms, Luther admits that he hated the righteousness of God. He, he couldn't reconcile the, the righteousness of God and his justice against sin with, with grace and how all this works. But while sitting in uh, the tower of Castle Church in Wittenberg, uh, going to the bathroom, actually, of, of all, he had terrible intestinal issues, Luther did. So he's thinking, as he's using the bathroom, he's thinking and reading and meditating and he, he has kind of a light bulb moment on this. And here's what he had to say uh, later on. He said, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Um, there, he says, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, as opposed to the active righteousness, with which a merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. He says, here I felt that I was altogether born again, and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. So Luther recognized that the phrase, the righteousness of God, is not God's active righteousness against sin, but God's gracious righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that as and that we receive God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is given to us as he gives to us the gift of faith. That's how Luther started to make sense of all of this. So the, the key thing that I want us to recognize so far up to this point is that it is the Bible, the scriptures that are central to the Reformation and the rediscovery of this doctrine, justification or rightness before God, by faith alone. Up to this point, justification was not seen as being attained by faith, which is God's gift to us, giving us the faith to believe in his son Jesus. It was justification by works, essentially, by, by doing that which the church required. And the two books that were very, very prominent in Luther's thinking on this was obviously Romans and then Galatians. And, and Luther, actually, you can still get Luther's commentary on, on Romans and Galatians. But I think, I think Luther's commentary on Galatians is probably the best commentary on Galatians that has ever been written. Um, and I, I, it's not a terribly long commentary, but it is phenomenal. If you ever want to just have a good devotional read, if you want to read Galatians and then read Luther's commentary on Galatians, it will edify your life. It is just a, a beautiful work of of commenting on the scriptures um but that's a that's a side note but galatians and romans were the were the really foundational books of the scriptures that got them there let me give you a sense of why it's not hard for us to know why we can just read the scriptures thankfully but and and you have i'll give you three three verses two from or three passages uh two from romans and one from galatians romans three twenty one to 25 says but now the righteousness of god 
has been manifested apart from the law. So we're not right with God through the law, but apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right with God, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, or someone willing to take the sins of someone else, by his blood to be received by faith. Right, so the, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. This is, this is clear. Now, you gotta, we have to understand, we, we have the Bible in our language. We, can, we don't need to know Greek. We don't need to know Hebrew. We have the, the, this treasure of Scripture in our, in our hands and on our phones where we can just open it and read it. Luther didn't live in a world like that. And Luther is, is living in a world in which the Scriptures are closed to, to almost everyone uh, aside from the, uh, the, the top leaders of the, of the church who are suppressing it and, and m- manipulating it. And he is working through this really and seeing God work in it. So these are the passages that were very crucial to that, aside from Romans one seventeen, which we already looked at. There's also, also Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Galatians 3, 10 through 14 says, For all who rely on works of the law, meaning earning our salvation by trying to be obedient in our own efforts, Paul says, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you don't do it all, you, you failed. You have, to, you have to be obedient in everything. And of course, none of us can do that. Now it is evident, Paul says, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. There Paul quotes that verse again. And then he says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So clearly, justification by faith is the central message of the gospel. It is the central message of the New Testament. It, this is just three passages, that, and we could, we could read many, many more, right? There's, there, it's everywhere when you see it. Luther begins to see it uh, at this point in, in the early 1500s, and he saw it in the Bible, and, and God used that to awaken his heart, and Luther is like, I got to bring this to everybody. So, so this starts the whole uh, trajectory. Justification by faith alone, this doctrine that Luther discovered in the scriptures, clashes with Rome's teaching of justification by faith and works. Thus, the Pope denounces Luther for preaching what he called dangerous doctrines, and he summons him to come to Rome. Luther uh, refuses to go to Rome, and instead they work it out so that he goes to this place called Leipzig in Germany, and he does this in 1519, so a couple years uh, after the 95 Theses is, is out and circulated, by this time, Luther, I think, is would say he was fully converted to Christ. Um, and so in 1519, he goes to Leipzig for a public debate with a guy named John Eck, who was a leading Catholic theologian at that time. And they, did, they have a d- debate, and they, um, they are disputing the, each other's positions. There, Luther affirms... Uh, something that was, this was kind of new for Luther. He affirms that the church councils of, of history could be wrong. And that was a, a pretty radical position at that time to take. That was a point that was made by John Wycliffe, if you remember. John Wycliffe questioned the authority of the church councils as we hold them above Scripture. If the church councils agree with Scripture, all fine and good, but we can't put the church councils above Scripture, which is what was happening. 
Wycliffe believed that. He got excommunicated for it and ultimately uh, killed and buried and dug up and burned and all these things. So Luther's now basically crossing a line to say, oh, I'm on John Wycliffe's team. And that's a, that's a dangerous place to put yourself. Luther also in this uh, debate with John Eck uh, went on to say that the authority of the Pope was a recent contrivance, that this was not a biblical doctrine. This was not even an early church doctrine, but this is a, a relatively recent invention. And he was also saying that the religious superstitions, um, like, like the papal authority, opposes the church council of Nicaea, which is probably the f- most foundational of the church councils, called by Constantine, right? But the council of Nicaea was an ecumenical council. It, it brought everybody, all the bishops from all over the world at that time together to make this decision. It wasn't the Pope handing down an edict. And so uh, Luther's basically appealing to the Council of Nicaea and saying, hey, we did this like collaboratively before. Why do we have this one guy now telling us what to do? And then he even goes so far as to say that papal authority contradicts scripture, which I would agree it does. Um, So taking this stand really irritates Rome, obviously. Right? And there he's getting to the very nerve center of, of Rome. Everything comes crashing down for Rome if you get rid of papal authority. Uh, this is why the Roman Catholic Church to this day still holds to the doctrine of papal authority. And those who are in that, in that camp, it's like they have to get it, they have to get there. And people who can't get there become Protestants because that's, that's just the natural thing that's going to happen. If you, if you reject papal authority, you can't be a Catholic. Uh, and so, so that's where Luther's at. And in the summer of 1520, so about a year after this, this debate with, uh, with this theologian, the Pope issues a bull, which is an edict. He writes out this thing that basically calls Luther a wild boar in God's vineyard and accuses him of being uh, this destructive force in the church. He also, in this papal bull, gives 41 of Luther's teachings, lists them out and deems them heretical, scandalous, or false. And with that, he gives Luther 60 days to repent or be excommunicated. Luther's response to that papal bull was to publicly burn it. So he, yeah, he, he crossed the line. He's clearly like, all right, I'm, I'm all in now. Like, we got it. We've got to do this. So open defiance, totally going to just re- reject all of this. Um, that's obviously applauded by many. And uh, those who were you know, members of the Roman Catholic Church and were on that team saw him as a marked man at this point. Um, a year later in 1521, there was a young uh, emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, he summons Luther to appear at the Diet of Worms in Worms, Germany. So Worms is a city um, that don't get too weirded out by that. He's not eating worms. It's a diet is a meeting. Worms is a city. Okay. Uh, and so he's called to this, this Diet of Worms and he uh, is ordered there by the, by the Holy Roman Emperor to recant. Uh, he's basically, they basically bring out all of Luther's books, all the books he wrote to disseminate his ideas, put them out on a table, and they tell him, hey, uh, everything that's in this book, you need these books you need to recant of, are you going to do that? And they gave him a day to think about it. Luther came back, and this is where we get his, his most famous words. Um, he says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. So that uh, here I stand title, that's why he calls that book that. So these, these defiant words become the Reformation's battle cry. Uh, Charles V condemns Luther as a heretic, puts a hefty price on his head, uh, but gives him 21 days to basically 
figure out, like gives him a 21-day head start, essentially, and goes, well, you're, you're going to get arrested after that, but, but um, figure it out. So he's given 21 days, and while in his um, travel back to Wittenberg, his own followers, his Lutheran followers, kidnap him and take him to a castle, a fortress, Wartburg Castle, and, is hidden, and he's hidden there for eight months. Um, and he's basically a prisoner in Wartburg Castle by his own people because they were afraid he was going to get killed and they wanted to protect him. Uh, but while he was in confinement in, in Wartburg Castle, he translates the Bible into German. Um, and then he begins to just disseminate the scriptures to the German people, which, of course, spreads the flames of the Reformation even faster. Uh, just real quickly, uh, a couple more bio- biographical things. In 1525, Luther marries a woman named Catherine von Bora. Uh, she was an amazing woman. She's got a crazy story of her own, but she was a runaway nun. Uh, she was in a nunnery and then was like, I'm out of here. She just like disappears. Um, and they end up meeting and they're both committed to the Reformation cause. And so they actually get married because they want to make a statement that the church doesn't have authority to tell them that they can't be married. And so as, as a, a priest or whatever, they both basically uh, renounce their monastery vows. They get married to each other. It was not a marriage of love uh, initially. Like they weren't like, oh, I just love you so much. I want to, they were like, no, let's just stick it to the man and get married. Uh, but the marriage ended up being a really sweet marriage. Uh, they loved each other very, very much. Their love letters are still around and uh, just very tender between the two of them. Um, but it wasn't a marriage out of love initially. It was a marriage out of uh, both of them seeing the church as a corrupt institution that needed to be protested against. So there you go. But it ended up working out. Um, till the end of his life, Luther maintained a heavy workload. He lectured, he preached, he taught, he, he was writing and debating um, this this really caused a lot of physical suffering in his life. He he really was subject to a lot of illnesses. Um, by the late 30s, f- uh, 1530s, early 40s, uh, he had gotten so sick he nearly died a couple times, but he was able to recover. Um, but in uh, February of 1546, Luther does fall ill and to the point that it's clear he was going to die. And his son's they had six children, him and his wife, ultimately. Two of them died in, in, child, uh, in childhood. But his, his three sons, Jonas, Martin, and Paul, um, were by his side. And a number of his friends were by his side as well. But he died on February 18th in the night. Upon his death, Catherine, his wife, um, wrote concerning his lasting influence, and this will give you a sense of how she felt about him. And he said, she said this, For who would not be sad and afflicted at the loss of such a precious man as my dear Lord was? He did great things, not just for a city or a single land, but for the whole world. Um, my wife doesn't call me dear Lord, but uh, she, she did. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> but Luther, but uh, Mrs. Luther here, she was, she was right. Luther's obviously a, a massive influence in the whole world, not just, a, not just Wittenberg, not just Germany, but everything reverberates. So that's Luther in a, in a nutshell here. And we'll, uh, we'll do our best to fly through the next character here. Um, the next guy is a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. He is uh, another major force in the, in the Reformation, although he does not carry the same weight of popularity or... or like ongoing knowledge, people don't talk about Zwingli as much, uh, but he does play a major role. So let's talk about him for a bit, and we'll try to go a little quicker through through this. Um, he was a first-generation reformer. In fact, uh, he and he and Luther were contemporaries. They they lived at the same time, um, but Zwingli didn't live in Germany. He lived in Switzerland, and. He is remembered in history as really the first Reformed theologian. So Luther was more of a preacher, teacher, commentary writer. Uh, Luther didn't write a lot of theological things. Uh, if you read Luther, everything's pretty quick, pretty short, pretty not shallow. That's not the right word, but pretty simple uh, in, in the, the sense that he's writing to a very uh, 
common group of people, but an uneducated group of people. And Luther really should be commended for that. I think he's he's not he was no fool, and and he definitely wasn't a, a slouch academically, but he was writing to a, an, a different audience. And Zwingli was much more of a of a theologian in the sense that he wrote a lot more uh, kind of higher things in the sense of the more academic-y things. Later on, John Calvin is going to come on the scene and will ultimately surpass Zwingli as a theologian by quite a bit. But uh, Zwingli was initially kind of the first theologian of around the Reformation. Uh, he was born just two months after Luther. Uh, they, he was born on January 1st, 1484. He was born in... Uh, Wild House or Wild House or something in, in uh, Switzerland, a uh, small village. And his father uh, had had worked his way through the ranks of society. Uh, he started out as a peasant, worked his way to middle class, was a successful farmer. And so he, he earned uh, a good living that way. And ultimately, uh, Zwingli's father became the chief magistrate for the district that they lived in. So he becomes kind of a, a politician of sorts. Uh, the, the prosperity that he had in his life um, allowed him to pay for his son to go to, to college, to go to university. And once again, just like Luther's dad worked, uh, worked hard to get Luther to university, so did uh, Ulrich Sr. did the same. Um, and so uh, while he was raising uh, Zwingli, he raised him in typical Swiss values, which would be uh, sturdy independence, strong patriotism, uh, zeal for religion, and interest in scholarship. So Zwingli is educated in the university as well. He's, he's ultimately, like Luther, ordained to the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. And he, uh, after graduating, or after, not graduating, after being ordained, uh, purchases a job, uh, a pastorate in uh, his boyhood church in Glarus. Uh, now, paying money for a job at a church seems weird, and it is, uh, to us, because but prior to the Reformation, the Reformation actually did a lot to crush this. It was called simony. It was a very common practice where you would buy your way into a job in the church. Um, and this, for Zwingli, as a young ordained priest in the Roman Catholic Church, this was nothing. Like he had the money to do it, so he bought his way into a job. Um, I'm sure, looking back, he's like probably shouldn't have done that, but whatever. He was he was living in the time he was living in. So he gets a job at his boyhood church. He spends his time preaching, teaching, pastoring. Was a very good pastor uh, by all accounts. Um, he devoted himself to a lot of study. He taught himself Greek and uh, was really uh, proficient in that. Um, as he spent a few years in Glarus, he his final year uh, was pivotal. It was this was when he started to really understand the scriptures in an evangelical way and in a, in a way that got him to the same place essentially as Luther. He's, um, we're, we're told here that Zwingli had memorized Paul's letters in the original Greek. And this was all happening about a year or more before Luther even nailed his 95 theses. So it's interesting that Luther gets so much of the credit for the Reformation, though Zwingli was ahead of him a little bit by a year or two. Um, and Zwingli, I think there, I'm going to give you a quote from him that, that definitely f feels a bit insecure to me <laughs> as I read it, but I can understand why he would say this. He said this, before anyone in the area had ever heard of Luther, I began to preach the gospel of Christ in 1516. I started preaching the gospel before I'd even heard Luther's name. Luther, whose name I did not know for at least another two years, had definitely not instructed me. I followed Holy Scripture alone. Now, I don't know why he felt so insecure that he had to say all of that, probably because somebody's accusing him of, of copying Luther. And he's going, no, 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 I was, I was on this train even before Luther was. Okay, whatever. But that that's, gives you a little bit of the timeline that we're dealing with. 1516, Zwingli leaves Glarus, uh, and he goes to serve as a priest in a Benedictine monastery in, until 1518. And that... Um, that Einzendeln, I think, is how you say that. I don't really know how to say these, these Swiss names. But uh, that was a city that was a resort town. So it had a big shrine to Mary that brought a lot of pilgrims to visit it. 
and he's he's basically preaching in a community that's bringing a lot of drawing a lot of outsiders in because of this shrine to Mary, and they come and they hear Zwingli preach, and that starts to spread his his message and his reputation. Uh, to other places as people come in and then they go home after they're done with their, their Virgin Mary vacation and, and they, they start to talk about what this guy Zwingli is saying. So he starts to distinguish himself as a popular preacher um, and as he does so, he starts to attack some of the abuses of the church, specifically, like Luther, indulgences. And his preaching begins to take on a, a more evangelical tone. But He's still not, at this point, quite all the way where he'll get. He doesn't think the church needs to be um, fully reformed. He thinks that there's a few things they need to tweak, some institutional changes, some moral changes. But for the most part, he's still dependent on church tradition over scripture in a lot of his preaching. Um, He's not quite where he will ultimately land. Um, 1518, Zwingli ultimately uh, leaves the monastery, uh, uh, yeah, leaves the monastery, goes to another position. He becomes known as the people's priest at Grossmünster, which I guess is, means great cathedral in Zurich. So Zurich is the big, the big city in Switzerland. And he's got this really significant position. So here's where things really start to take off for Zwingli. When he gets to this cathedral, he starts to break from the normal practice of preaching through the church calendar or according to the church calendar where the church will dictate well, what we're preaching on which Sunday. And instead, he announces that he's going to start preaching through books of the Bible. And so he just is like, you know what? I'm done with the church calendar thing. I'm just going to start in Matthew and we're just going to preach through the New Testament. And he does. It takes him six years to preach the whole New Testament uh, Sunday after Sunday, but he works his way exegetically, passage by passage, verse by verse, consecutively through the New Testament. And that is really where everything starts to to go right, in a sense, or, or go wrong, depending on your point of view. Uh, but as, as Zwingli preaches through the Bible, he is expounding on, he's teaching on the truths that he encounters in the text, even as they differ from the historical tradition of the church. This is where he really begins to see the scriptures for what they are and goes, that's the authority. If it contradicts the church, then the church is wrong, not the Bible. And so in, by January of 1523, he writes his own theses, uh, a 67-point theses, in which he rejects uh, many medieval beliefs. He rejects forced fasting, clerical celibacy, purgatory, the mass, and priestly mediation, among other things. And uh, he also, like Luther, gets married out of protest. He marries a widow named Anna Reinhard, and uh, they they have a great great marriage as well. She was not a, a nun who ran away from the nunnery, but he uh, he does get married as a basically as a, as a protest to the church. Um, what's really interesting about this, when you study Luther and Zwingli, it's amazing how God is doing these things independently, but simultaneously. It's, it's just, it's remarkable that God is opening up the eyes of these people at the exact same time, but in completely different countries. Um, so by... Uh, uh, 1525, the Reformation movement in Zurich had gained significant traction. So as Zwingli, he's the primary preacher for the whole city of Zurich, this great cathedral in the city. And he, just through his preaching of the scriptures, begins to really see the Reformation take root in the city of Zurich. And on April 14th, 1525, the mass, the Catholic mass, was officially abolished in the city of Zurich the Protestant worship services uh, were officially started and Zwingli uh, just taught what was in scripture. Anything that had no explicit scriptural support was rejected. So, so what's interesting is that the city of Zurich begins to really, it's the whole, like the leaders of the city take it politically towards reformation and break from Rome. 
they, um, they did a number of things. The scriptures were read and preached in the language of the people. So not in Latin as it had been done by the Catholic Church. Um, the entire congregation was able to receive both the bread and the wine in communion rather than just the bread. The wine was reserved and still is in Catholic churches reserved for only the priest to partake. Ministers traded in their their uh, Catholic robes for clothes that were more uh, aligned with uh, the, the common person. Uh, the veneration of Mary and the saints was forbidden. Indulgences were banned in Zurich. Uh, prayers for the dead were stopped in Zurich. Uh, the city breaks with Rome. This is a this is the first like moment where a, a civil government is like, yeah, we're we're done with Rome, and that's all led by Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli actually dies on the battlefield. Um, he was a chaplain um, during a, a battle in 1531. Basically, what was happening is that there was an escalating conflict between the Protestants in Zurich and the Catholics in other territories around Switzerland. And the Catholics decided to uh, try to stop this militarily. So there's a war that breaks out. And the city of Zurich goes to battle to defend itself against the invading Catholic territories, uh, mostly from the south in Switzerland. Uh, Zwingli uh, goes out to battle as a field chaplain. Um, He's... He's got a battle axe as his weapon. I don't know if he used it, but he is severely wounded uh, on the battlefield. And as he's found lying wounded, um, the Catholic soldiers kill him and, um, and ultimately just treat him very disgracefully. They quarter him, hack him into pieces, burn him. Um, yeah, it's, it's not great, but that's par for the course with a lot of this. So, so that Zwingli dies in, in uh, 1531. So his ministry was relatively short um, compared to Luther, uh, but he accomplished a, a lot in that short amount of time, or I should say the Lord did uh, through him. And uh, Zwingli really is where those who are not of Lutheran tradition or Presbyterian tradition, if you're more of a Baptist, uh, a lot of Zwingli's beliefs about the Lord's Supper about baptism, although Zwingli still embraced infant baptism, but his his followers and his thought descendants moved away from that in time. Um, Zwingli wasn't ready to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, right? But he was ready to, but he was willing to make um, some different pers- perspectives on communion and, and the practices of, of the church. Uh, so there is a, a stream of Christianity that is very indebted to Zwingli's thoughts, uh, and practices, and the, basically the conviction that if it's not in the Bible, we're not going to do it, uh, is still one that I think we we can be grateful for. Um, so so that's all that. And and just one real quick thing: Luther and Zwingli did meet each other. Um, they had a disagreement about communion, and they came together to have have it out and talk about it and try to sort it out. And it didn't go well. Luther was like, no, not going to have this. And just couldn't get there with Zwingli. And Zwingli was frustrated by that, of course. Uh, but Luther, you know, he was, he was convicted about the things he was convicted about. I think he was wrong in, in, his, in his view on that. Um, but without getting lost in the weeds on all the communion stuff, that was they did meet over that issue at some point in time and, and uh, couldn't come to a consensus. But real quickly, as we wrap this up tonight, let's, um, let's just talk about some of that early Reformation theology. What are the things that we, as, as Protestant Christians, um, are in, what are we indebted to from this early point in time? And then we'll, we'll continue next week to talk about further later developments of the Reformation. Um, but I think the foundational thing is that because of Luther's new understanding of the gospel, he began to operate with very different definitions of sin and faith than he did previously. Right? The things he understood to be sin, like murder and adultery and all that stuff, like all things we would agree, yes, are sin, he actually understood now to be symptoms of a real problem, which was unbelief. And this is, what, this is how he articulated it. He, he said, this is the sin of the world, that it does not believe on Christ. Now that there is no now that there is no sin against the law besides this, but that there is the real 
This, rather, is the real chief sin, which condemns the whole world, even if it could be charged with no other sin. And to that, I go, yes and amen. I agree with Luther on this one. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Lutheran, uh, uh, convictionally, but I'm like 80 to 90% on Team Luther. Like, I, so much of what he's, what he's about, when you get outside of like the, the nitty-gritty church tradition stuff, and you just break down his teaching and his theology, it's like, yeah, the dude is absolutely right that the chief issue is that we don't believe in Jesus. And that's the root of all sin. And, um, and so I, I'm, I'm all there with him on that. And, and so um, in contrast to, to what faith and faith was at, at that time, was he, he, before he was a Christian, he saw it as a just going along to get along. Basically, you go to the mass and that's faith. Um, and, and he recognized that it's not something that we do. Instead, he, he saw that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, like Romans ten seventeen says. Another major development in the early Reformation is the vital importance of studying the scriptures. Now, I know that not everyone is called to be teachers of the word. The, the Bible actually clearly teaches that. And in James, it, it admonishes that not all of us to be teachers. But all of us have the benefit of growing spiritually. And I think the, the calling on our lives to grow spiritually through the word. And the fact that we have the access to the Bible that was not accessible before Luther and Zwingli and later Calvin and later Tyndale, um, these guys who translated the Bible into languages that people actually speak and can read, we're all the beneficiaries of that. And, but, but the heart of growing in Christ, as they discovered in their own lives, is the study of the scriptures. And I think that we should take, take that to heart and, uh, and at times look at ourselves in the mirror and go, am I actually taking advantage of the opportunity God's given me to know him through the Bible, and they didn't have that opportunity until the Reformation really kicked off. We should be grateful for the time we live. Um, so just wrapping it up here, next week we'll look at a couple more reformers that came after Luther and Zwingli. Um, we'll explore some of the key points of Reformation theology that develops over time uh, next week as well. Uh, but I think the key takeaway for tonight is that we... We need to see the value and importance of scriptures to shape us and to form or reform us into the gospel, uh, to the gospel of Jesus. It is God's word that did its work in Luther and Zwingli. It's God's word that led them to have such strong convictions, even to be willing to stand against the authorities. It's God's word that continues today, today to drive the Reformation forward. And, uh, and it's God's word that shapes Christianity so I, I think we, we just need to really take that to heart is the, the centrality of the Bible is the, is the key takeaway, I think, from uh, Luther's legacy and Zwingli's legacy. And, and as we move through Calvin and, uh, and Cranmer in England and some other guys who were very influential in moving the ball down the field even further, there are other takeaways that we can make from this. Uh, but I think foundationally and centrally, it is the scriptures uh, that that turn everything uh, on its head and, and make us and conform us uh, to the likeness of Christ. So that's that. Um, next week, we'll take the second part of Reformation, uh, but we'll we'll head out um, tonight. But if, if anybody has any questions, we can we can talk through those.